Hello, hello. Welcome to Decoded. My name is Sydney Lai, and this is a podcast by developers for developers where we explore the topics that will be relevant for the next generation of devs. The show is brought to you by OutSystems and a huge plug for Decoded Labs videos where we're going to have complimentary videos of different demos and builds that are related to the episodes. This season, we're exploring different types of developer tools, developer platforms, or just tech apps that folks are huge fans of. With that being said, speaking of huge fan, the MVP of 2020 is Slack. And I do want to say and welcome Justin Harden, a senior software engineer at Slack. I am super excited to share this episode with you all. It's going to be really fun to see how Slack was started and some of the technical difficulties and challenges that Slack experienced, especially as we entered the future of work, the mass need and adoption for a remote workspace. And let's dig into it. Justin Harden, I want to welcome you to OutSystems Decoded Podcast. So thank you so much for joining. Yeah, and thank you for having me. Yeah. I guess what I really want to dive in today is how did you find yourself to Slack? Like what was your developer journey and how did you how did you make it to one of the well, well-known brands of the tech ecosystem? Yeah, I would say like a mix of luck and hard work. I know that's pretty generic, but I am one of those people who dropped out of college. And by the way, not like a fancy college. I dropped out of junior college and I read a book by Michio Kaku called Physics of the Future. And it scared me and excited me. It was talking about the different technologies that are going to happen in the future. And you know, I felt like I wanted to be a part of it, especially person coming from my background, you know, being black, there's not a lot of people in technology and just the technology that's coming out, I feel like, you know, we need a voice there. And so I taught myself programming. I found my way into this hacker space called Noisebridge. It's kind of this anarchy hacker space. Dude, I was uh, a part of Noisebridge in the mission. You were part of Noisebridge? Yeah. You know, that's probably how we met is like in oh, Noisebridge. That, I would probably... Yes. That makes is that so much sense. That is probably yeah, it. I would go in and like solder things. I was like really into IoT. Yes. Back okay. Like, yes. Now I remember. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. So no- Noisebridge, yeah, that was my incubation ground. Like I... I originally, like while I was in junior college, there was a coding club and our first field trip was Noisebridge. And I went there, people were soldering, building robots, programming. There's a, there's just all this stuff. And I was just like, you know what? Like, this is better than school. Like, I'm just going to stay here and like teach myself programming. So through that journey, I met people and there was a guy who told me like, hey, like if you want to get into this, you should apply for internships. And so I cold emailed this company, Butcher Shop Creative. And I said I would do anything. Like, I just want to be a fly on the wall. I'll sweep the floors. Like, just let me let me get in. And so I went there. And embarrassingly enough, one of the managers there was working with me. And he told me, okay, write this click function. And it, I think it took me the full day to write just one jQuery click function. And I was so happy at the end of the day. And he was just like, oh, like, okay, now like fix these IE7 issues or whatever. So did that, worked the internships. I had a, like a break in between and luckily enough, I got contacted by a recruiting firm and, you know, they, like I, I built up skills during the internship of doing data visualization and front end development. And that led to going to this company called 140 proof. 
And there they brought me on as a designer slash engineer and really got a chance to like build, take ownership and build a product. And it was like a data analytics project and really loved that. A lot of hard work, work after that different agencies. I, I started my own agency and traveled the world, did the whole digital nomad thing, came back to the States and I wanted something more grounded. So I was working at this company, Gusto. We do apparel for small businesses. And, and one of the cool pieces of culture there that I continue today is that they wear slippers in the office. So you can wear slippers, people wear fuzzy slippers. And so now working at home, I have these pair of like wolf fuzzy slippers that I walk around with, you know, to handle real, real enterprise business. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then through that, and mind you, it was a contract hire position. I got contacted to Slack. And I mean, when the email came, I was trying not to scream because I've you know been using Slack since I've been a developer and there was something very humanizing about their product and I couldn't like put my finger on what exactly that was but I knew that I wasn't crazy in thinking this because I talked to other designers and developers and they're like yeah like there's just something about Slack that it's humanizing it's magical even though it's just a chat platform but you know as soon as I joined Slack you realize like oh this is bigger than just a chat platform this is going to change the way people work and it's and it has especially during this pandemic people, you know, transitioning from offices to online. And so that that's sort of my journey. It's really just like a lot of hard work and luck. And and I would say also just being in the right place at the right time. Like San Francisco in these last 10 years, being in the Bay Area, it's, I would cut school and go to meetups and they had free pizza there. And it was just, uh, <laughs> it was just awesome. So it's my journey to Slack and yeah. Yeah, well, what a grounded journey. And but also at the same time, so absolutely exciting. I think something mm-hmm. that you touched on as well was this humanizing aspect. I've never mm-hmm. heard of Slack described as that, mm-hmm. but I think that's actually a very incredible adjective for describing Slack. Do you happen to know how or why Slack was started? Yeah. And how, yeah. And I guess the follow-on question is like, how did they even get people to adopt Slack? Because it's like, yo, you don't, you know, is it email, right? So start with that. Definitely. So so the story of Slack, from what I've been told, is a story of failure and trying to pivot into something that is useful and that people can use. And so it started originally as a gaming platform. And some of the, like, if you hit like a 404 page, you can kind of see some of the, the old gaming aspects. Like there's like kind of like Farmville where you can like feed pigs and like talk to each other. And like during that time, like they unfortunately ran out of money and so they had to lay people off and they pivoted and so like all right like what piece of our product works and it was the, the chat aspect and so they started prototyping and developing the chat product and one of the reasons why and I found out that that had that humanizing tone of slack was that they kept on the woman who was creating the dialogues for the actual game and had her do the dialogues for the product and so you have this enterprise chat platform but with error messages and help messages and onboarding in a more like uh, conversational tone. So that helps with the product. And yeah, like it's, and I remember the early days just being on the outside of Slack where it was a very word of mouth type of product that spread. So like every startup in the Valley was like, Hey, like you're using Slack, like you should use Slack. You should get on. And at the time, I think the Zeitgeist, like everyone was on like HipChat or like using their own branded IRC chat client. But I remember just like HipChat, it was just crashing all the time. It was very clunky. I uh, completely forgot about HipChat. HipChat is still around, right? It was by... No, so HipChat... Um, so Slack and Atlassian did a partnership to where we acquired their HipChat property. So better for the overall community. And yeah, so that was like the, the early days of it just uh, spreading word to mouth. And right now we're in the position where 
you know, a lot of startups using it and really we're trying to help larger companies, help larger enterprises onboard to Slack and help them out during their office transition. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, I definitely want to touch on that, but I think something you also mm-hmm. mentioned was the early days of Slack's journey, especially acquiring HipChat, either related mm-hmm. to that or not. I guess my question would be, what were some of the early technical challenges you think Slack mm-hmm really experienced back in the day? So from what I've learned from talking to people at Slack, like one of the main technical challenges was just purely scaling, going from 1,000, 10,000 to 100,000. At the time, the largest client we had was IBM. I think they were about, let's say like, let's say 20,000, 50,000. But at the time, the way that the they're handling database sharding, like it was very, I wouldn't say manual, but very like, like you'll have like, okay, like for a new workspace, create a new database. For a new workspace, create a new database. And so it wasn't very sophisticated charting and we just had scaling issues. So like if IBM scaled to a certain size, the whole site would go down. That was one of the issues in the early days. And it was just a process of learning because when I speak with engineers who were there building it, it was a case of like, all right, like, I mean, Slack was one of the fastest growing SaaS products. So a lot of like engineers and even the company as a whole didn't, you know, you just don't know until it until it happens and you adjust to it. And right now, I mean, we're able to support like our largest customer right now is Amazon and Amazon is humongous. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can't even can't quote you any yeah, there's exact Amazon numbers, and but there's um, AWS. You just got everyone everyone's on site. That's like mind every pillar of Amazon. Yeah. But definitely during the early days it was it was scaling, especially the back end systems. Did you create a programming language just to build Slack? Was it build Oh, like what no. kind of framework was it? So Slack was built, the client. So on the back end, it was PHP. And then on the front end, it was vanilla JavaScript. And so what had happened, and similar to Facebook, where PHP, as it scales, it was requiring more and more hardware resources. And so there's a brilliant engineer. I wish I, I, wish I can, can quote his name, but he created the, the Hackling Compiler. Actually, it's, it has a funny... Uh, <laughs> A funny name. I want to look it up so I can actually quote it, but it's the hip hop virtual machine, HHVM. And what HHVM allowed Facebook and Slack to do is to basically not exactly rewrite their code base, but allow uh, PHP to have another compile target. And what it did was say it required like six servers to run uh, PHP, it cut it down to three with the HHVM engine. And so basically it was ported to that. And now currently Slack is running on still PHP on the, I mean, still hackling on the back end, but on the front end, they're using React. And yeah, it's definitely been a journey from what I hear from a lot of the engineers. Like it was, it's one of those things where it's like, how do you, you're facing scaling issues and you're at a company that large saying that you're going to do a total rewrite is a very expensive proposition. And like, is there a way to, to meet in the middle? Is there toolings that you can adapt? to transition your old code base to the new code base and what is the process doing that? I was going to say, so then what do you think Slack found Mm -hmm. some solutions to address scaling Mm backend issues? Yes. Also, I mean, developing, I mean, not developing, but also adopting other technologies. So like in the beginning, it was just basic MySQL. Now we're using Vitesse. I believe it's a project created by YouTube and that helps a lot with the sharding, doing a lot of, let's say like edge caching. I think we're using Memcache on the back end and what that allows us to do is like let's say if like someone is requesting or is like on the Slack, Slack client in Australia it wouldn't make sense for the servers to go all the way back to San Francisco and then back to Australia 
have is there like latency a, uh, issues as well with that or yeah that, okay. some late latency issues so you'll have like cash stored in like singapore so that you know it's closer to australia and just those type of deals where it's just you become more you build in more complexity to adapt to the scale you know as you're also mentioning how this latency issue could arise from storing in different countries and we've been talking about scaling as an issue but i mean how you tackle scaling as an issue. And so how has Slack also played a role into, you know, you talked a lot about localizing, right? So anywhere from Mm -hmm. localizing the marketing websites, like let's start with that. Because even as we saw in the 2020 pandemic, Silicon Valley was on Slack and tech folks were on Slack. But then, and Slack is a very, you know, at first, at least in my perspective, a very American product. And then how do Mm -hmm. you also sell that value add into maybe some cultures that are more maybe conservative or traditional in the way how they do conduct business and office culture? And and how do you transmit that message into even just the marketing website itself, right? Definitely. I think the first step there is because you're not going to, I mean, especially with a software product, you're not going to always comply with office culture. Like let's say there's a country that has a very conservative office culture. There's not like, oh, we're going to strip out emoji reactions or just stuff like that. So like the first step is let's speak their language. So we're in the process of, we're localizing Slack native to country's language. The ones I've worked on recently have been Korean and Italian that's launched. We have some other ones coming up. I do not want to mention them just just yet. Well, I'll look out for that um, one. For, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> but a couple of big countries, one of our biggest, like moving off of just like the Latin-based language was going into Japan and having it fully localized in Japanese. And Japan is a, is a huge market for us. And it's amazing to see people adopt it there. And what we do, especially like on the marketing side, is we localize not just the language itself, all of the strings, but also the imagery, the graphics that we're using, making sure that it's contextual to the countries that we're in. And I haven't seen much of that in any other companies. But if you go to like our Japanese site, you'll see that it's very Japanese focused. And another project that we worked on was having the blog not only localize, but allow marketers from each country to release their own articles. So let's say if you're representing the Japan audience, you should be able to create articles that are targeted at your specific market. And so we're, we're empowering other marketers in countries. Because Slack is, I mean, we, we have offices in, in Ireland and Japan and Canada. And just like those teams as well want to spread the word of Slack. And it's like, how can we best suit their needs doing that? And yeah, that's what our localization effort. And I think it's really important too, because um, like you said, like Slack is a very American-based company. But at least in my vision, that's not, how the world is going to see tech moving on in the future. Like it's going to be like tech is a global entity and it shouldn't be just a Silicon Valley thing. As we see even like in a post-pandemic world, like the whole notion of Silicon Valley, it should exist on the internet. It shouldn't be like you have to move to the specific place to work at these specific companies. It's going to be all around. Yeah. And I think that it's really incredible and just like even taking one step away from the tech aspect of like how it's built, but it's also thinking about how Slack is a technical solution or almost the virtualization. It's probably not the right word, mm-hmm. but of the office, right? It's Yes. Yeah. And so I do want to kind of go even deeper in maybe some of the projects that you're familiar with or maybe, you know, Korea or Japan. Do you happen to know? Because I think when mm-hmm. I think of Japan, I also think of Japan as like the early 
when we were growing up, like early chat rooms and Mm -hmm. they had built their own platforms. I don't know if you've heard of Line by any chance. No, I haven't heard of Line. It's okay. So Line is another like IRC. Well, it's it's actually for mobile, but it's WhatsApp for primarily Mm -hmm. Japan and Taiwan. And Line Mm -hmm. was created in 2013, whenever that tsunami was. There was a giant tsunami. Mm -hmm. And like Japan Twitter, I guess, wasn't as active and they didn't have a system to find lost family members, et cetera. So, but I think that in Japan, you know, in the 90s and early, early 2000s, there's a lot of culture and like online culture built around online chat groups and whatnot. And so they built Line, which is essentially WhatsApp or WeChat, but specifically for Japan. And I guess where I was going with this is just, I don't know from your experience, have you seen, what was the difference in terms of adoption as well as, I'll give the example, even like emojis, like emojis are pretty mm-hmm. big in Slack. Was that well received in Japanese market? Cause they, they have their own emoji culture as well. Yeah. So I can't say specifically like on data points on like how, what is the use of emojis within Japanese countries? But I think one of the cool parts of Slack is that you can create your own emojis. That's right. Customize that's, that's it a good as point. well. Yeah. So it's not like how like, oh, it's Apple and Android emojis and those are your default. Like you can extend it as much as possible. And you can even do cool things where like there's these react emojis. Like let's say if you put an emoji on a post, it can automatically use that post and fill it into another channel. So like, for instance, like I have one set up, like if someone puts an emoji of my face, it goes to like a special, like Justin did good chat. And I just have all these like chats of posts that I've like tagged or people have tagged. It's pretty awesome that you can actually like with emojis itself, wire that into our API and like create different systems to react based on them. So I think that's, that works pretty well. Like I said, I can't quote any specific numbers on yeah, the use just, cases Yeah, I was just curious, like kind of top of yeah. mind. So then when you guys are also localizing Slack, is it just the mm-hmm. marketing website or is it actually like the actual... It's the full product. Oh, wow. Okay. So Slack is definitely divided into many pillars. Like we have the, let's say like the self-service product team. We have the customer acquisition team that focuses on marketing. We have different branches of the enterprise team, Slack Connect team, Slack Networking Search. But when it comes to localization, we come together as a team and we have each one of their leads kind of handle all of them. So like I would lead all of the marketing site team, but when we're coming together in meetings and like how we roll things out, it's all the same across the product. So when we say we were launching Korean, the product is localized, the site is localized, App Store help center like all of those things will be localized as well this comes from like an actual mm-hmm. curiosity like so why would mm-hmm. it not make sense to have just a for slack because air quotes it's just a chat app right um yeah. air quotes so why can one not just simply like hey here is mm-hmm. the platform and it's going to work mm-hmm. for everyone but let's just change the marketing website which is like the front of the funnel definitely i would say it's really I mean, a testament to like the craftsmanship of what built Slack. Like people really gravitated to Slack that it wasn't, I'm sorry, like if we can't say this, but it wasn't a half-assed big product. Uh, You know, you focus on the product fully 100%, whether it be the front end, the back end, the the marketing site, the product. And so it would be, I mean, unethical is not the right word, but let's say if we're advertising for Korean in the marketing site, it wouldn't make sense to not have the product and the actual system language within the product be localized with their language as well. Um, I mean, I think, I don't know if you've ever heard about this, but that's kind of what happened with 
Oh my God, I haven't said that word in so Yahoo? Yeah. <laughs> it's been literally yeah. so long since I said that word. Like with oh my Yahoo. God. What is Yahoo? Yeah, again? I was like, what I was like, <laughs> Yahoo? Yahoo? Um, I, I don't I don't think I've said Yahoo 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 since like 2014, which seems like mm -hmm. a million years. But the point that I'm trying to make was that I think that for Yahoo Japan, all the other like Oh my, oh my God, GeoCities was a part of Yahoo, I think, right? Yes, Right. So, they were. Yeah, so like Yahoo was maybe like in the mid to late 90s, like, you know, they had a bunch of products and services and mm -hmm. whatnots. I mean, horrible analogy. Maybe it was like maybe the AWS for like random consumers of, okay, that was a weird analogy. Yeah. But, but the point that I was like 30 different products growing yeah. at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And I think the one that's, the country that they really stayed on last was Japan, meaning I think they only closed Yahoo. No, I'm sorry. Okay, so I was thinking GeoCities. So GeoCities is a product within the Yahoo ecosystem was the last thing to close in Japan. But I was just thinking mm -hmm. in terms of localization, that's where I was going. With localization, mm -hmm. everything looked really clean for Yahoo.com. But when you went to Yahoo.com, mm -hmm. like .jp or however that works, once you went to the Japan's Yahoo it looked like a visual chaotic mess. And I think from like a Western yeah. lens, you're like, how do I navigate the site? I, there's just so many glittery blinking things. And and one thing that I learned about that site actually was it was designed for the appetite of that time for a Japanese consumer. Because if it was too, at the time, if it was too minimalistic or clean, it was actually harder for them to navigate. I don't know yeah. if you've heard about that. Yeah. I, no, I've, I've heard about that as well, especially like even that, that sentiment echoed in like Chinese and Indian sites too, where like the design, the more compact and things moving around, things blinking is actually better than like the Western minimalist consumer view. And that would be, I would say like for a team to execute on that in the right way, I think that would be a lot harder. And it's not something that we do. So like we would, we localize the language as well as the imagery what's in the country we don't necessarily change the design of the page on a per country basis but one thing we do do is we make sure that the typography that we're choosing looks right for the site because like for like let's say like if we're using like a circular pro or something on the west like on the english speaking sites or the latin based sites we can't use that specific typography on the Japanese side because like, A, maybe that character set is not supported or B, that the fonts are rendering at a different, like the weights are rendering at a different width and things just look weird. And yeah, and something something you have to think about as well is, is typography and like how you load it in different fonts. And, and yeah, and even so like boiling down to like, even like, you know, how you render currencies on these different sites. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting thing to tackle, but I think it's a like it's a fight worth fighting because tech is a global entity, and we want to support every country that's out there. Make sure that they're speaking like we're speaking their language as well, and it's not just the marketing side, but also with Slack products as well. One of the things that I've seen throughout the years I've noticed is Slack has not only become a communication platform, but also a place where developer communities live. I don't know if you have any mm -hmm. insight to that, if you had any thoughts about that, like, you know, just how it really began or stuck. Um, I mean, yeah, if you have any thoughts about just like as as a place for Definitely. where devs, yeah, live. Definitely. I mean, even early on, it was a thing where a lot of just developer teams within the company just started using it and then slowly get the marketing, sales, finance team on board. But it's always been like developer has been their core audience. Definitely 
with Slack's kind of like self-serve free tier, you still see a lot of developer communities existing. And I, I personally think there's a lot of room to grow within that space, within community and developer tools. But, you know, like Slack, at least, all right, so you know, Slack will be acquired by Salesforce, but at least right now, Slack has been able to stay focused by kind of like having like a temple and what they're going to do. Like right now, it's like, how can we empower enterprise customers? How can we make it so companies are, are able to connect with each other and kind of like less so on the self-service developer teams, but it still exists and it's still an important part of Slack. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. And I guess just to kind of roll back then, oftentimes what I see is that within even like dev communities, and I know, as you just mentioned, the focus right now is is absolutely the enterprise mm-hmm. route, which absolutely mm-hmm. makes sense. I think, especially at just dovetailing the pandemic, frankly, right? Mm-hmm. This is a need that needs to be addressed. Slack is gosh, very, very well positioned to provide that need. And of course, as you can imagine, there are a lot of thesis of the future of work is remote. I'm sure there's tons of startups, tons of early stage VC funds in the Valley early, early on, on that thesis of like the future of work, the future of work, the future of work. And then once 2020 hit and you're like, huzzah, we are here. Like I no longer sound crazy. I guess when did that vision or mission become apparent for Slack, right? So let's let's say, again, originally it was a gaming mm-hmm. tool of some sort, or if it was in that industry. Yeah. What was the thought there? I know we touched just very briefly on it in the intro, so I kind of want to bring it back to that. When did it transition from, when and why did it transition from like the gaming space into, okay, this is going to replace email? Because I remember that was the value add in the early days, yeah. right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah I totally want to use this. And then from like, okay, this will replace email to like, okay, we are a much bigger part of the narrative mm-hmm. of the human experience of how we consume tech because yeah. we are the future of work. So there's kind of like these three, maybe transitional phases. Yeah, definitely. I think it was one, like that phase hit early on because what made like, or even the idea for Slack, they were using it while they were developing the game. So it was always like a very like, we're using this to help build our game and everything. And it was an easy way to communicate and get answers and questions, like submit questions and answers very fast paced. Because like, I remember, I mean, even like in the last couple of years where I would work at agencies and they would use emails and it would would be days in between before you hear a response. And not to say that that's a problem because I know like what's in Slack, like we have to be conscious in like how people use it, where we don't want it to seem like everyone has to be on the time in order to feel like a productive member in their company, but to have that visibility and things like like channel-based where things are, are more visible to the broader company or you can have private spaces. So I see that as a natural progression. I don't know exactly when the actual like, this is going to be the future of work, this is the initiative happened. But it, like from my personal view of like seeing it from the outside, it seemed something that was baked within the company and that it kind of revealed itself like, oh, like this is how we're working. This is probably how other people, it might make other people easier to work with with this. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that absolutely makes sense. I mean, I think it's so interesting because Slack has been really a solution to some of the biggest challenges that humanity has faced. And this is just a reflection, I mean, frankly, probably of just 2020. But I think it also, not just the challenges of, hey, we're working remote or how do we communicate, but... Also, Mm -hmm. the challenge of maybe even democratizing the access of Mm -hmm. your social network, 
as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe democratizing your skill sets. I mean, we kind of talked about this earlier. There's different dev communities. Now that you and I don't have NoiseBridge anymore, what is that mm-hmm. NoiseBridge version on Slack? And and I also think the way Slack has rolled out your life, I don't know, like marketplace and libraries, right? Like people can now, mm-hmm. small dev teams can now build solutions build. and products to also like democratize the feature set of Slack. So mm-hmm. if if Slack doesn't have this on the product roadmap and prioritizing it, then some teams can just be like, hey, we want Donut or a way to like meet your virtual colleagues and just hang out. And that probably wouldn't be prioritized, but like, hey, like a team can build that, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So I guess I just want to hear your thoughts on, on either. And I think it's you know, amazing because this is the like one of the first companies I've worked at where they had that marketplace component where it wasn't like, okay, this is on our product map. This is what the product's going to be. When you release that marketplace component and allow those integrations, you see these like, it's like a Cambriatic like re- reaction of like all these people developing tools for it. And like within the company itself, we find these new and exciting ways to use this tool. So like even Donut, like having that be a part of the company allows like, when you're at a like larger company, you can meet people that you wouldn't necessarily like. You're not sitting next to a desk to talk to this person, and kind of like allow for in this post-pandemic world, like how what does networking happen? Like what is the new noise bridge of the internet? And I feel like companies like Slack have that ability to empower those communities to create those networks there. I think like specifically with the integrations piece, I mean like that's I would say even like sort of like all right, like it becomes visible and apparent of like how people are using Slack, why the integrations they create. And let's say in the early days, it was probably mostly when we released integrations, like, all right, how can we wire in our deployment process for this? And then as it expanded, we'll be like, all right, how can we pull this whole company? And hey, like we can use emojis to do polling and stuff like that. And so I can see those use cases being more broad as more people will get onboarded. And it was specifically, I mean, like interesting during the pandemic, like having doctors who, you know, traditionally communicate over email to communicate with doctors in other states within other countries to share their findings, because especially with the virus, things were moving so fast, couldn't rely on old technologies to coordinate. So I I think you've seen a lot of Slack from the way it started, it transitioned, Mm -hmm. how it affected people and technology before the pandemic and during and currently during the pandemic. I mean, I think another thought is the topics of Slack really tackling volume and scale and mm-hmm. localization. Those those are really incredible feats. Another thing is just if there was one takeaway thing is like, hey, you know, this is what we've learned as a team or even building out developer tools for the Slack ecosystem. Like what was probably one of the harder things that you had to tackle, you know, was it data privacy? It's the servers. Like what? Yeah, yeah. I guess kind of like almost like a closing thought on, on that end, at least. Definitely. So, I mean, broadly speaking, there's so many teams that like had those specific issues, whether it be scaling data privacy. And one of the issues that part of my team and like what we've been facing is like, we want Slack to grow and we want it to be consistent. So it's like, how can we make our front end through the product and the marketing site consistent? How can we have a design system? How can we utilize components? And that's one of the things that as a team growing where I, like, I see Slack as being kind of like an innovator in this space where you know you have all these developers working, how can you bring consistency? And some of it is through getting everyone on the same page, but other times it's through how can you create toolings that allow developers not to think about this? So whether it be 
creating components or having automated tests like you know Cypress or just just checking things if the stuff breaks. And I think really, like especially with a company at this size, is like have tests in place, have alerts set up in, in place so that you can be notified of the problem before it hits your customers or user and make sure that it's connected to your deployment process as well. Because there's been so many things where, like, and I've seen in smaller stage companies where it's like, you don't know a thing is an issue until it affects that large enough customers to where they're contacting you and saying like, hey, like, this is not working for us. So really being thoughtful on consistency as well as testing. And yeah, I mean, like my hat's off to a lot of people on the infrastructure team on Slack, because through the pandemic, I mean, we've had more people use the product more than ever. And, you know, just humanizing to, to a certain respect, like... People, you know, having to support this amount of skill while there's a global pandemic and people having to take care of their families and stuff as well. Like my hats goes off to the people on call, to the people getting the page, pagers late at night. You guys are like the front line of the Internet. <laughs> yeah, the front line of Internet. When things don't go well, we're trending on Twitter. So we, right. we got to keep it up. And So, yeah, I mean, that's exactly my point. I mean, you've seen every part of the journey as a developer, you've seen every part mm-hmm. of the journey as a consumer of tech. So, I mean, with that being said, like what was, now that you're a developer, even before then, like mm-hmm. what was probably your most nostalgic piece of tech or gadget that you remember? Like your first impression or just most nostalgic where you're like, okay, this is tech. This is not just a Lego brick. Ooh, God, most nostalgic piece of tech. So we're talking about like, software like kind of when- whatever it's it's free flowing <laughs> you know it could be your first mp3 or like or like yeah. whatever. do blenders um, count? i would say like with like the first piece of tech that like really inspired me that was like outside of books at a very young age like i had like a cousin who gave me a city of fruity loops or sl studios a beat making program and i remember being so fascinated that you can create sounds from the computer it's like all right like my computer like i just remember being a kid because like i had like I got this software when I was like in the third grade or whatever. And like, I remember the computer did this. Like I remember asked Jeeves and like, you can do all these things. And then all of a sudden someone gave me a CD where like, if I type some keyboard, some things on the keyboard, it'll have different sounds and you can tweak it. And that fascinated me all, all the way up into the point of like learning program is like, how do you, it's basically like digital signal processing. Like, how does that work? And so just going down that rabbit hole and everything. And so that was the first piece that was like, oh my God, like, you can sort of create a new world through tech and specifically software. You don't like, yes, there's limitations within hardware, but a lot of the limitations are within your mind. Like you can always optimize or like reduce the amount of resources that a program can take to a certain point, of course. But, uh, but yeah, like that was the first time where I was like, whoa, like you can create virtual art, virtual things with on the, on the computer. And, yeah, so that that makes me really nostalgic. Oh I man, I know, <laughs> really I know. As you're like, describing this, I can see you, like you were closing your eyes, you were like thinking into it. <laughs> like I was, I was super into just watching you go back into your childhood memory of your real first, or at least nostalgic memory of like coming into mm-hmm. tech or or even like the early stages of programming. And I think without a doubt that actually reminded me. And I haven't remembered this thought, but I remember I had like a compact. It was. It was a computer. There were they were like white. They were just like these thick white computers. Mm -hmm. And I remember going back like OG eBay looking for turntables. I didn't have any (laughs) money. Like I I didn't have an account. I think I was too young. I I just wanted turntables because I remember watching it was a Johan from Lincoln Park and he would like rip on his turntables. I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to make music. But I do want to introduce to you though, 
Have you heard of AWS Deep Composer? No, what's that? All right, you got to check it out. I think I heard about it maybe like a year. I don't know when it released, but I think a year ago, AWS Deep Composer is essentially like composing music with machine learning models. And Oh my God. I know, I know. So you can basically be an orchestra. You can just like build your own songs. I think it would just be fun if you just want to like make a few beats. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Because like, honestly, since I learned programming, my beat making career has kind of ended. Like, because my hobby has become my job. My job is also my hobby still working on other things as well. By the way, I have to mention I'm all like on the side, I'm working on climatebase.org. And one of our missions there is to funnel jobs and capital into the climate space. Check out climatebase.org. It's definitely a thing me and my friends working on as a passion project and it's it's amazing. We have a very large community there as well. And <laughs> No, absolutely. I think that topic is incredibly relevant and it's just like mm-hmm. every year it's proven so, so needed. So I think that's a great way to really close it out. Like what's the best mm-hmm. way to reach out to you, to hit you up, and also get involved in this climate initiative that you're working on? Yeah, so best way to reach out to me, you can check out my Twitter. My Twitter, I'm just pulling up the username right now. My Twitter name is at jharden925. Please go check out climatebase.org. It's definitely the largest platform for people interested in climate tech. Right now, let's see, what are we? We're about like almost 13,000 members. We want to keep that growing. There's so many cool companies working on climate change and especially in the climate tech space. And yeah, like I just love being a developer and engineer. And one of my my goals is like I want to be the person who, you know, you walk into a meeting, people have all these dreams and visions. Like I'm the type of person who's like, all right, like this is how we build it. This is how we're gonna chop this thing down in the actionable steps. Cause I want to make these dreams a reality. Yeah. Amazing. Justin Harden, thank you so, so much for sharing your experience as a software engineer at Slack. Thank you so much for that call to action of having other devs and folks Mm -hmm. being interested in working on climate change. With Mm -hmm. that being said, yes, go ahead and follow Justin. Learn more about Climate Base if you want to learn more about Slack as well. There's, I mean, there's tons Mm -hmm. of resources. I don't, I don't think Slack needs a promo. Everyone knows Slack (laughs) at this point. But with that being said, thank you so much for sharing your journey and, and really sharing with us just learning more about how a Silicon Valley startup became a really important company that has changed the way we work and communicate. And it's so, it was, it was awesome. Thank you so much for attending and being with us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Wow. So that was an incredible conversation with just how Slack is built. I definitely want to thank Justin. It was a really fun walk down to memory lane of exploring hackerspaces. Yeah, I think that Slack is this generation's hackerspace. It's this generation's workspace. It's really yeah, like I said, I think 2020 Slack was the MVP. Like Slack wins the MVP award there. Maybe Zoom, right? Zoom is like a top contender. But nonetheless, I super appreciate you staying on towards the end. As a reminder, this developer podcast is made for all the devs out there and your allies, right? Whoever wants to learn about how great companies, great dev tools are built, season two is going to be a great way to explore these types of conversations. For those who haven't checked out season one yet, it's really about exploring the career journey of developers. So definitely check in there. 
Again, if I'm going to leave this in the show notes, if you want to reach out on Twitter at Sydney Lai, feel free to DM me. It's open. So if you have any requests or any ideas of just awesome content by devs, for devs, let's hear them. Let's do this. Y'all have a wonderful, wonderful time. See you next time.